You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. So uh, hopefully uh, you guys will be a nicer crowd to me than the uh, 9 o'clock service were when I preached an entire sermon with a price tag hanging off of my shirt. And nobody told me. Well, actually, you know what? A hundred people told me afterwards. But, you know, it keeps you humble. Um, we're going to start out this morning uh, in Luke chapter 15. So if you would like to start there, uh, we're going to... Uh, look at some stories that Jesus told about the lost. And uh, it starts out, we actually figure out at the beginning of this chapter who the crowd is around him that he's talking to, Jesus. And uh, Luke 14, verse 25, um, it uh, kind of tells us that there were great crowds coming to him. So just before it moves into Luke 15, we see great crowds coming to Jesus, and then we learn who that crowd consisted of. That crowd consisted of the scribes and Pharisees. It consisted of tax collectors and sinners, and it consisted of Jesus' disciples. And, uh, you know, the Pharisees hated a lot of things about Jesus and the way he did things, and the fact that he mixed crowds like this would have been near the top of their list of things that they did not like about Jesus. And in Luke 15, we see that attitude. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, they, they showed the same attitude earlier on in Jesus' ministry, just a little while after uh, Jesus heals a paralyzed man, And in Luke 5, it tells us this story. It says, Afterwards, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, when you look at the attitude of the the Pharisees, it, it kind of leads me to ask a couple of questions. The first question I have to ask myself is like, why did it bother the Pharisees that Jesus spent time with sinners? You know, why did he hate, why did they hate Jesus spending time with sinners? But the other question, maybe a little bit more kind of provoking, is why did the Pharisees not spend time with sinners? You know, uh, sometimes it's good for us to ask ourselves these questions. In uh, uh, Paul Gibbs' book, Havarim, it talks about how to study the Word and how the Word might study you. And uh, this is one of the methods of study that is in there. We ask a question like this, is why did the Pharisees not spend time with sinners and, and answer that question? And I'd like for you to answer that question for yourself this morning. The Pharisees didn't spend time with sinners because blank. 
What's the reason for you? Maybe you want to write that down. Maybe you want to bring that to mind. Why the Pharisees did not spend time with sinners was because blank. I asked some people this week um, that very same question, and I recorded some of their answers. One person said, well, it's because it would expose their own flaws and sin for them to do that. Another person said the Pharisees didn't spend time with sinners because they're not Jewish. They're just different to me. They're not God's chosen people. Another person said that the Pharisees didn't spend time with sinners because they think they're better than everybody else. Another person, their sin might rub off on me or influence me. I might become guilty by association. And the fifth person I asked, it was real insightful to me, was they were afraid. The Pharisees didn't spend time with sinners because they didn't understand them. And they were afraid. It brought fear of them. And I don't know what answer uh, you might give as to why you think the Pharisees did not spend time with sinners. Maybe it's something similar to what these five people have said. Or maybe it's something completely different. But here's the thing. Is it possibly is the reason that the Pharisees didn't spend time with sinners. But it's probably the reason that you don't. Your answer to this question might be revealing more about you than it did about the Pharisees. Is there a reason why I don't spend time with certain kinds of people? Maybe because I'm afraid of them. Maybe I think I'm better than them. Maybe I feel that I'm just so different that we don't have anything in common. There are reasons internally that I might choose not to spend time with some kinds of people. And, um, you know, Jesus kind of uh, proceeds. You've got these grumbling, complaining Pharisees with this bad attitude about Jesus spending time with sinners and tax collectors. And then you've got this large crowd of people. And uh, he proceeds to tell these Three different stories. The first one is, is one we just sang about. It's the story of the lost sheep. And uh, the story goes like this in verse 4 to verse 7. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? He does not give up. He looks for it until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or this was already going to start prodding at the Pharisees, isn't it? That last line that he says there, that... that, that, it's uh, heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents uh, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance because they saw themselves as righteous and by the law, by the things that they were doing. And this story would very much have uh, resonated with the men in the crowd. And uh, the story, the idea of shepherding and being out in the field very much would have connected with the men that Jesus was sharing this story with. But then he tells a story also that would have resonated with the women. In, in verse 8 to verse 10, it says, Or what woman, 
having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is a joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And, you know, in the Jewish tradition, uh, when a woman was married, that they would be given a kind of like a headband that had uh, 10 silver coins. It was kind of like a modern day wedding ring. It was, that was what it was symbolic of. And, you know, for, uh, for a woman to lose one of these coins uh, wasn't only going to be a like material loss. Um, when uh, Emma and I got married, um, my parents gifted us a honeymoon in the Dominican Republic, and it was, it was amazing. It was just a great time that we got to have together, and uh, we were, our, our, our hotel room was right on the beach, and we got to go out and just spend time, and we one day was out in the ocean, and we were swimming, just, you know, kind of standing. We weren't deep out in the ocean, and my wedding ring was brand new, and, uh, and it was uh, just a little bit too big. For my finger. And as I was swimming, it slipped off my finger. I felt it slip down my finger. And I reached out to grab it, and my fingertips hit it, but I didn't grab it. And it just sank. And like it was a sunny day, and like it was white gold. And so you could just see this glimmer of reflection just fading down. And then it hit the sand, and it could not be seen, it was gone. And I spent literally hours of that day where it was lost, looking for it, looking in the sand. Uh, you know, my fingers and toes was all wrinkly. We was out there so long trying to find it. We went out. We saw a guy with a metal detector walking along the beach, you know, finding scrap and lost items. And we hired him to come and try and find it in the ocean. He, he said, yeah, it works in the ocean. Let me get diving gear. And he goes and he comes and he goes searching for it, didn't find it. And then, uh, and then we spend some of the evening before it got dark just walking along the ocean, just praying that miraculously that the waves might wash it up, you know, and we're just kind of walking along the shoreline hoping that we're going to find this ring. And I never found it. I never found it. That fat um, uh, honeymoon during that time, we went out and I bought a metal ring that cost us $10 and I put that on my finger uh, during, during the honeymoon, and I kept it for one year, and on our first anniversary, Emma gifted me a, a brand new gold ring and with the same symbolism. But, you know, I look at this story of, of the lost coin, and I realize, man, there was something of more value than just monetary value that she was searching for. There was some recognition, kind of part of her identity that felt like it was lost. Something of real you know, significance, emotional significance. And, um, and, and when he tells this story to, to engage the women in the audience, it would have frustrated the Pharisees perhaps even further because they were kind of known for marginalizing women. Jesus is including them. And he's trying to reach the very, you know, soul of the women and, and, and sharing these, these stories that just they connect to the, the audience that's there that what, when something is lost that is precious, that this finder goes out and searches for it. Like it's, it's, it's important. And it's something that, that God puts effort into. And the, the Pharisees kind of hear this. And um, 
you know, I'm sure are kind of getting more frustrated and grumbling and complaining even more. And then Jesus gets to uh, perhaps the most famous of all the three stories in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. And, and the, the story sets up in a way that the youngest son decides that he's done with the living at home life that he has, that he wants his future inheritance now, and I want to go and live the life I want to live and do the things I want to do. I think I know best, and I can have a better life if I do things my way. His attitude isn't that strange, is it? We do this. We think we know better. So he takes his inheritance early. He goes off and he squanders it. He squanders it on wild parties. The Bible describes it to be spent on prostitutes. It describes him uh, buying friendship and having uh, you know, a lot of interest in his life until the money is gone and then his friends are also gone. His, his fun is also gone. His purpose and his plan is also flushed down the toilet. And he comes back after finding himself at rock bottom eating with the pigs that it will surely be better for me to beg to be serving my father as a slave in his household. At least I'll get a roof and at least I'll get food. And he comes back. And the story is picked up here is when we hear the uh, older brother's response. And it's the older brother's response to his brother's return that really would have got the Pharisees' ears. Listen to it. He says, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and, in, and entreated him, but his, he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You know, all of a sudden, like the son who viewed himself as the faithful one, the loyal one, the good one, the hardworking one, is now the bitter one, the jealous one, the judgmental one. And all of these doing the right things hasn't done a whole lot of good for his attitude, right? And we see like this, this horror, like he doesn't want to celebrate the brother was lost and is now found. He doesn't want to celebrate. He doesn't think he deserves it. There's this really ugly side to this attitude that the brother has that Jesus points out in the Pharisees, but listen to the father's response. He says, how does his, uh, sorry, in Luke 15, he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's, it's almost like his dad, his father is saying, I am not going to disown my son who went off and lived in this way, but I don't want to disown you either. He may have done some of these wrong things, but I want him at my table. You may have this terrible attitude, 
but I want you at my table and I want us to be a family and I want us to be together. And it kind of gets to this point. I really need to hear that. You know, when, when, when the father responds to this ugly attitude sometimes, it's sometimes easy for me to remember that God is a gracious God and a forgiving God for people like the younger son, which totally described the way I lived a large portion of my life. And that God will forgive someone who wanders away and squanders everything. But it's harder sometimes for me to remember God also does forgive my ugly attitude to people as an as a active Christian. You know, I need to be reminded that, that the same grace and forgiveness is given to me and to you, but there is a need to repent. There is a need for me to ask God to forgive me of that attitude. And this story ends without us knowing how the older brother responds to his father's invitation. We don't know if he reconciled with his brother. We don't know if he came and sat at the table and joined the feast. There's no end to the story, happy or sad. There's just no ending. It leaves a question, and it would have left the Pharisees wondering, what was he going to do? And more importantly, to Jesus' hope with these parables, what are you going to do with that attitude? What are you going to do to my offer of grace and forgiveness and my offer to say, I want you to come and be forgiven, but sit at a place across from your younger brother, from a sinner? It's hard for us, like, you know, and, and sometimes we have to re be really honest and know that there is a Pharisee, there is an older brother inside of me and of you. And, and to sometimes ask the questions, like, who are the people that I really dislike and kind of really get real? Is there any kind of person whose lifestyle is so vile to me that I just don't want anything to do with them? Like, is there any kind of person who just believes so complete opposite of what I believe to be good and true that I can't even talk to that person? Like those people that we judge and, and have bitterness towards and, and put walls against are the very people that Jesus would have embraced and spent time with. Would you be like the Pharisees, grumbling and complaining about that? Would that make you upset that God would want to spend time with those people? And, and when we ask ourselves, like, why do I not spend time with those kinds of people? We have to get honest with the answers so we can ask God to help us. You know, the, um, the, the verse says that the Pharisees were grumbling about it. It means complaining. And, and it was a vocal thing. And, you know, and, and what that looks like sometimes for us, it could be that we, we talk badly about certain kinds of people with people who are more like-minded with us. We talk badly about others. You know, sometimes it might be that we make inappropriate jokes about the lifestyle that some people have that are lost in. You know, other times it may just be that we, that we not just talk badly about them or make jokes about them, but we maybe even go even further and write bad things publicly that people can see that we condone them. And it's, and it's a problem in us. It's a Pharisee attitude, an older brother attitude in us that Jesus is trying to, to point at. But, but there's a difference, I think, between 
between the Pharisees and Jesus' attitude that can be summed up with one word, and it is compassion. Jesus had compassion. This is another story about sheep in Matthew 9, verse 35, and it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, which was be very diverse crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, those words there that Jesus had compassion, but what he saw when he looked out at the lost was people who were helpless, people who were harassed. It's very possible they were harassed by the Pharisees. And they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were just wandering. They had no guide, no one to protect them and help them and, and, and shepherd them. And, uh, you know, sometimes we can be in danger of being the ones that harass the lost more than we are the ones who have compassion for them. I mean, that's the very, like, worst scenario for us is not only do we grumble and complain and not want to spend time with certain kinds of people, but we contribute to the problem. We add to it. We pile up onto it. Um, but, you know, evangelism, I'm going to talk about evangelism here a little bit this morning, and it is dying in the United States. Uh, George Barner is, um, is the top researcher in, in the country uh, trying to get, help us understand what is going on in our world, what's going on in the United States, what's going on in churches, how are people thinking, what are people's lifestyles? How are people responding to the gospel and to church? And here's some of the findings from his newest research, which is called Reviving Evangelism. If you want to buy it, it's really insightful. But he says this in there, it's 47% of practicing Christians aged 20 to 34 say that it is wrong to evangelize. Not only don't want to do it, but it's I shouldn't do it. It's wrong for me to evangelize. 38% of practicing Christians say they have no non-Christian friends or family members. 56% of practicing Christians report having two or fewer conversations about faith with a non-Christian during the past year. I mean, that's one, less than one conversation every six months about what Jesus has done in my life, like what he's done for me. Like evangelism is, is spiraling. It's, it's, it's going down. And as the need for people to know Jesus grows, our response to that is diminishing. And, and I think there's a few different reasons. And, and the book uh, that uh, Barner, the findings Barner puts out there help us to understand that. Has anyone ever done track? Has anyone ever ran track? I'm not going to have you jump hurdles, Rowan. Um, but uh, so some of you all have run track. I saw a couple of hands. Um, and if you've ever jumped hurdles, you'll know that you learn how to jump hurdles by bloodying your knees, by grazing your elbows, and by getting up and trying again. And it's not something that normally comes naturally to, uh, to, uh, to everybody to be able to... to uh, 
be athletic and to just be able to succeed. And it takes practice. You know, uh, I had a coach where if you did succeed immediately, he's going to raise it up. You know, he's going to make it harder for you. And uh, because he wants the best for you, your coach wants you to succeed. And now evangelism has some hurdles, but hurdles are not uh, walls that can't be removed. They're just, they're obstacles that can be overcome, but we may suffer some blooded knees and some scuffed elbows along the way. These challenges I'm going to share with you are things that can be overcome. Uh, One of the first challenges is that we have a differing ideology. So Timothy Keller says this, uh, he wrote this, and it just really spoke to me. The gospel creates a certain humility that promotes honest dialogue and confession. Today, left-wing and right-wing people hate each other. They're not even civil about their differences anymore. Christians ought to be humbled by the gospel. They should show respect to people who differ from them, but also be confident and willing to embrace difficult conversations. Real Christians are humble, bold agents of civility. They act as salt and light, bringing people who can't even talk to each other together because of the hatred. Christians lead the way in confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, and listening. If we want revival, we should be agents for the kind of civil society we don't have right now in America. Those four things are so important. Confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, and listening, because those are things I can look at my life and do something about in my life. I can be the humble one. I can ask for forgiveness when I have had a bad attitude towards certain kinds of people or grumbled or complained or spoke badly about them. I can do my part in bringing relationships together by being the one who listens and doesn't just do all the talking and trying to convince, even when I'm right. (laughs) Even when I think I'm right, believe I'm right, have everything in me says, what you're saying is wrong, I can just listen (laughs) and and be that listening voice. We're going to talk about that a little bit further here before we finish up. Some other hurdles to evangelism is that the idea, and and they found this among non-believers primarily, is that they believe that uh, authority comes internally, not externally. What I believe comes from within. What I think is right is what's right. It's not an external source. It's not my school. It's not my parents. And it's certainly not the Word of God. It's not the Bible, which is hard for us. It's a hurdle for us who believe that it's not most important what I think or want to believe. What the Word of God says is most important. That's a hurdle for us that people believe that way. The attitude of you need to stay in your lane. This attitude that people have that don't, you, you do you, I'll do me, don't cross over into my lane, tell me how I should live. Like, that's fine if you want to do that. I've got no problem with you doing you, but stay out of my lane. This is the way I'm going to do things. It says more than four, four in five Americans say that one should not criticize the life choice of others. This is a challenge that we have. People don't want to be told that they are wrong. Another hurdle um, is uh, that people see conversion as extreme. Converting to a certain belief is extreme. In fact, 83% of non-Christians believe that trying to convert another person to their faith is an example of religious extremism. 
There's two hurdles, I think, in this. One is that's a view that people hold. Second is we don't want to be extreme. We don't want to be extreme in people's lives. We're afraid of that reputation that we might hold if we are extreme. But there's some ways we can do that. We're going we're gonna to talk about. Another hurdle is bad religion. People seeing these terrible things that Christians have done and holding that reputation to Jesus Christ and to the church and to you as a believer. So we saw uh, just recently, we see all the time, you know, uh, preachers that are money grabbing, have these multi-million dollar mansions because they're on the TV saying, if you need prayer, then you send this amount of money and I'm going to send you a handkerchief. And if you touch that handkerchief, you're going to be well and healthy. And they're like, great, here's my $100. Here comes in the post. And they get postage and packing, by the way, probably. And then they get their handkerchief and nothing happens. They don't change. They've given up their money and there's been no life change. And this idea of just investing finances, finances, finances has made a reputation for the church that makes it hard for non-believers to even care to want to be a part of Christianity. You know, we saw this last week, uh, the great apologist, Ravi Zacharias, who perhaps more than any other apologist in my lifetime at least, has led people to believe in Jesus Christ and know the, the truth through academically understanding how things work in this world and what the Bible teaches and comparing worldviews with the Bible and helping people come to a conclusion academically that this must be the right way. This must be the truth. And, and after he passed away, um, things started getting found out that he was deeply involved in sexual sin, in sexual assault and abuse of women and the manipulation of women. There was a, a lady who had, who had come forward and, uh, and shared that he had abused her during a massage session and she was called a liar. Her reputation was destroyed. She was told that she was just trying to fleece the ministry for money, trying to sue them for money and gain something from good old Ravi. And uh, it all comes out that it was true and it happened multiple, multiple times. And though I don't think that this isn't something that God can really redeem and use, he can't ask for forgiveness now. And that reputation, that hurt is heard and it's felt. And, and it's really hard. It's a barrier for us to, to share and to evangelize to people when these kinds of things are happening. You know, it's just, it's another thorn in our side. It's another tarnish on the reputation of Christianity. You know, that people are skeptical is another hurdle, are skeptical of sincerity. You know, they, they don't know what to believe. You know, in an era where there's so much fake news, knowing what to really believe has just become harder and harder. There's a documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which will scare you if you watch it, uh, how the big tech people are watching everything you do. But um, I would recommend watching it if you like to be scared. Um, but they, they revealed that fake news is shared six times more often than real news. And, and fact, even fact-checking has become really challenging for people because they don't know where to go to trust to check the facts was right or not. And, and so this era of just not knowing really what to believe has become 
a real challenge to, to believers in sharing the truth. Um, within the church, we have a challenge that, um, that there are people that are believers, acting, practicing Christians, that, are, that have grown up to believe or understand that evangelism is the job of either the leaders of the church or the gifted in evangelism. That it's not the job of the entire church of every believer. And, uh, you know, this Wednesday, Derek will be starting his class, Gifted. And I really recommend if you're not in something on Wednesdays and you have uh, that evening available, this is going to be an amazing class for you to come and plug in and learn what your spiritual gift is and how you can use it in the church and in the community. And uh, one of those gifts will be evangelism and and, uh, just a little bit of insight to what you're going to probably hear Derek unpack in that week is that evangelism is the job of every believer. The job of the gifted evangelism uh, evangelist, the one that God gives that gift to, is to train and equip everybody else. But every one of us has the job of sharing about what God has done in our life and the truth of Jesus Christ. The last two hurdles, uh, one is conversational barriers. We don't know how to engage with people who think differently than us. We, we just we feel awkward and I don't really know how to do that. There's, there's barriers in us that we don't know. And I really see that this needs to be the job of the church to be the ones that have those awkward conversations, that that humble themselves, that try to have those conversations with people who are different than us and not wait and expect that it should be 50-50 effort, (laughs) that, you know, we should be the ones, I think, that take the first step as believers that have the Holy Spirit's help in us versus the one who doesn't. They just have the flesh. Imagine how hard it would be then (laughs) without the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance and strength and courage that we have, even if we don't feel like we have it, it's there. And then the last challenge we have is uh, people don't know. It It says that 51% of churchgoers say they've never heard of the concept of the Great Commission. They they either have not heard it, it's not been shared, they've forgotten it conveniently or just genuinely. It's something that 51% of churchgoers say they've never heard, the concept of the Great Commission. But there are opportunities. It's not all doom and gloom. These are overcomable hurdles. But there are some things we have to understand about the culture we live in, I think, to be able to engage with the lost in a way that is effective and that is loving and that shows compassion. Uh, The first opportunity is something we have practiced well at City on the Hill, and it's transparency. The lost respond well to authenticity and transparency. When you are real and honest about your flaws, failings, story, even recently, you know, not just, I used to be a sinner, but this is what I did then, but now this is my life and I'm all good. Not that kind of transparency about your past. Talk about your failings today, you know, to be real about the challenges you're facing as you're going through life as a believer. You know, we've gotten that down. We are blessed at City on a Hill to have a culture of transparency. That has not been my experience in other churches I attended or worked on staff at. And uh, it's the reason when I got here uh, that I said, I'm never leaving, (laughs) And I, and I love it. And, and it's a good thing for us to be in that practice. And, and we have to realize that doesn't just have to stay, that culture, that 
that being willing to be transparent shouldn't just stay within the walls of the church and your small groups. Take that attitude into your conversations with those who are not saved. You know, be real, be honest. Another opportunity we have is, uh, is the digital world. You know, the digital world has given us the opportunity to uh, be vocal, to share uh, more than any other time in history. And I'm not just talking social media. I'm talking about websites, blogs. You can write, you know, deep, meaningful stories and, and be able to put them out there. Creative people out here can make videos and, and demonstrate, like, artistically what God has done in your life. And, and people who are artistic will connect with that in a different way by watching a video that you've created than you, they will in just a sitting down, having a conversation. You know, and so this this digital world has given us opportunities that we've never had before, and we can use that. Um, the other opportunity we have is the, the opportunity to relearn the art of conversation. So, you know, people who are uh, in social media, uh, as, as it's grown, have been able to utilize that tool to share what they think, to like to move from discussion, like conversation, to just telling, right? And, and that's kind of what that's become a lot of times. We move from a discussion and a back and forth to just telling people what to think or what I want you to know or hear. And even more recently, in the last couple of years, it's moved the culture from telling to yelling. And, and now that's all we want to do is make sure you hear me and know what I want you to believe and know what I think about something. I don't even care if it's right. I just want you to be heard. And, and in this era where everyone wants to shout and yell and be heard and put out their thoughts and their beliefs, who's listening? It, it needs to be us. You know, we need to be the, the ones that say, okay, let me... I don't agree with what you're saying. I'm not going to say that, though, right now. I'm just going to listen and try and maybe at some point I'll start to understand why you feel that way, you know, and, and why you, your experiences have led you to that conclusion. And even when what somebody is telling me, it doesn't line up with what I believe, I'm not going to interrupt and just tell them they're wrong and let me tell you what I think. I just want to listen. Sometimes it's not for one conversation. Sometimes that could be for years, where you just are the one that listens. But I do believe this to be true, that at some point, if that is your attitude, they're going to ask you, what do you think? What's your story? What's your experience? Once you have that invitation, you get to share, lovingly directing them to truth. And that is an amazing moment because we've relearned conversation and we've given on the invitation to share with them. Uh, it means that the, the, their ears are open and the heart is open. We're not just yelling louder than the next person. And that's something we all have to relearn how to do. Um, you know, there's some other uh, you know, things that um, people who are lost respond well to. One is hospitality. Okay, hospitality is seen as generous. So in a world where everything is online, doing things in real life is seen as kind of extreme. Like to be actually invited into your home or space, or maybe it's not into your house, 
but to say, look, next time that I go here, I want you to come with me. I want to spend time with you in person. Your home, opening your home and, and opening your calendar to spend time with people in real life is seen by those who are not believers to be generous and to be hospitable. And that, that will provide opportunities for you. Um, you know, there's a, there's a real longing for community that people who have left the church still have. And uh, you know, last time I got to stand on this stage, I think I got to share with you the, the facts and the, and the statistics about the number of people who leave church when they graduate high school um, has, has always been a problem for a long time. People tend to leave, and then when they get married or have kids, they often would come back, right? And, and that was a trend that kind of was happening, and it made us a little bit less worried about those people leaving the church at 18 because we knew they would come back. But the, the trend has changed. They're not coming back. And they're seeking some of the benefits that the church offers in other things. There's an organization, CrossFit, that offers six of their, their values. The values that keeps people in their business and in their community are these values. Community, I have people that I'm doing this with. Personal transformation, there's something that is better about my life for being a part of that community. Social transformation, so I have friendship and I have companionship as I am changing. Purpose finding and CrossFit are very good at helping you to, to focus your uh, efforts on accomplishing a goal and finding a purpose and doing that with others. Creativity and being able to not just have a one-size-fits-all, excuse the pun, uh, a one-size-fits-all model for uh, how I will get fit. Uh, creativity is important, and accountability. That there's accountability not just from the coach in the CrossFit, but from the other people that are working out. And, and these things are sought out by people who are not believers. They want these six things. They want community. They want accountability. They want to have a mutual purpose with other people. But they're not finding it in the church. They're finding it somewhere else. And we've got two options on how we respond to that. One, well, you'll find it in the church. Quit going to CrossFit. Come to church. You know, you should find it here. This is where you should have that. And there's other benefits you'll get from being in the church that God intended for the church to do. And that's one response we could have. The second response is, okay, I'm going to come join CrossFit with you. I'm going to not only rely on inviting you into my church and into my space and hope that you will make the bold step to come and be with a group of people you barely know and, and come here and find those six things. And I'm going to come into yours. I'm going to take the hard step. And I hate working out, <laughs> and, but I'm going to do it. And it's a loving thing I'm going to do to have those things with you and engage in conversation and get to know you and hope that over time I will earn the right to share what God has done in my life with you and, and, and tell them the truth of the gospel. Um, you know, uh, often uh, you know, I put up, I work in the offices here in the gym building and just over here, and uh, there's people who come out onto the uh, disc golf course. It's, it's all day. There's people out there. If it's not raining, there are people. If it is raining, there's people out there. And, uh, you know, I've made it a goal. As every day, I'm, I'm going to interrupt somebody's, somebody's game. 
and um, and I'm gonna ask, hey, do you mind if I if I join you and, and play with you? I'd kind of typically like to look for smaller groups because you know a big group is uh, is harder to to engage. But um, you know, and and, uh, and I love to tell them, hey, oh, yeah, I work here at the offices. I I saw this this place uh, put together, and I can kind of be your guide. And and I'm not very good at disc golf. And so it's very humbling oftentimes to play with guys who have been playing for a number of years and are really good. And so I have to humble myself, but that opportunity provides, you know, uh, the, the moments to, to share about, they ask you what, most of the time, what do you do? And it gives me a chance to talk to them about, about the church and, uh, and, our, and our love for the community and how this is a hospital church and that anyone can come here and find help and hope and healing. You know, and we have to look for those chances, right? We have to find them out, and then we have to take them. And uh, there are days that do not want to do that. You know, Derek asked me to tell you that he's really good at disc golf and also humble. And uh, so uh, I figured I would, I would tell you. But, yeah, I get humbled even just playing with, uh, with Derek. Um, but let me, uh, let me just kind of finish up with this. You know, evangelism is not one sentence that you learn to tell somebody. Evangelism isn't just one single idea of if I do this among the lost, surely they will want to come to know Christ. It can't be a script. Every person who needs to hear about Jesus needs to hear about it in a unique way because they are unique. They're made, the only one that God has ever made is, is right there. And we have to know that the way they hear about Jesus has to be just as unique as the way that God knit them together in their mother's womb. And if you get to know them, you'll get to know, you know, what ways that you might be able to share with them that will connect with them. You know, everything we do is either evangelism or devangelism. You know, everything we do is either improving the reputation of Jesus Christ and his church or it's damaging it. And, uh, you know, for some of us, you know, if, if you're like me, uh, a lot of these things that I shared with you today came out of my journal. There are attitudes that I need to ask God to forgive me from, attitudes I have towards certain kinds of people. You know, the Pharisee in me, the older brother in me, um, the judgmental Christian in me. And if you're like me, the first place we have to start with being better at doing evangelism is, is to ask God to change our hearts, you know, to give us more compassion and to make us less judgmental. Um, but then we have to be bold, and thank goodness the Holy Spirit helps us, you know, to, to be courageous, to step out, to take hold of opportunities, to seek out opportunities, to make sacrifices and tell people that they are loved. We've got some great opportunities coming up right after Easter, the Wednesday, straight after Easter. Um, I'm sorry, Mark, I missed that when we were supposed to talk about it. But there's uh, six weeks um, where we're going to be running a series um, uh, on the big questions that people ask. Explore God. It's the series this church was doing when I first came here uh, almost 10 years ago. And we're going to bring that back in kind of a slightly new format. And there's a great opportunity for you to come with them and, um, and explore God and talk about the big questions that people who are not believers are asking. And, um, and so we want to provide some opportunities, but you are the most precious resource you have. 
and, uh, and, and we want that to be there and for you to have a chance to come and, and do that. And so hopefully that will be, a, 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 you know, just give you an opportunity of something practical to work towards. But I really want to pray uh, for you uh, as you seek out opportunities every day in your world. Father, thank you uh, so much that you have saved us, that you love us, that you forgive us when our attitudes are ugly, Lord, that you um, are constantly working in us as believers to become more like you in every day. Lord, that we know that we are flawed and, um, and that we do sometimes contribute to the, to the problem of, of sharing your love and your truth. And God, I pray that you would help every one of us in this room to remember that Christianity has to not only be true, but also be good um, for people to come to know you. And I pray that you would help us be good in the way we live it and be willing to speak when the opportunity presents itself. And I pray these things in your awesome name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you all.